Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, a new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller and my guest in this program is Ronald Hutton, whose new book is a history of the ancient and enduring fear of the witch. The fear of bad magic lurks below the skin of Western society. At times it comes up above the surface. Ronald is Professor of History at the University of Bristol. As well as being a specialist in the history of Britain in the 16th and 17th centuries, he's also a leading authority on ancient and medieval paganism and magic, and on the global context of witchcraft beliefs. His new book, called simply The Witch, tackles the question of why the incidence of witch trials peaked in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Ronald calls it an explosion in the second half of the 16th century. The majority of all executions for witchcraft in Europe, a total of between 40 and 60,000 people, took place in the space of a single, long lifetime. Yet many of the elements which went into creating the figure of the witch already dated back centuries. So why did they come together as a new construct, the satanic witch, at the end of the Middle Ages? Ronald's quest for answers takes him to a wide range of historical and geographical locations. When we met in Bristol, I began by asking him how he'd set the parameters for this project. I decided the parameters had to be very wide, or in terms of time, very deep, right at the beginning, because at the end of the 1980s, I was becoming aware of how enormous the scholarship of witchcraft was in the world in general, and also of how important ancient models were to later European beliefs. And that's when I settled down patiently to 25-odd years' worth of investigating each corner of it. And if, you, if I were to ask you, perhaps as invidious to ask you to try and summarise what it, what it was you were trying to identify or, or grasp or convey, but when you, when you set about that 25 years of work, how did, how did you conceive of what you were in pursuit of? It's a very simple answer in many ways, that uh, what I was out to do was to explain the notorious early modern European witch trials even better than before. And uh, if I could look at what happened the rest of the world, I could work out whatever was unusual about Europe, if anything. And by looking at uh, the whole of European history, I could work out how far back the origins of this burst of slaughter went, and why it was that mass trials of witches broke out at that particular quite late time in European history. And as you make clear in the book, scholarly views of the validity of certain types of, of cross-cultural and cross-time um, 
temporal comparisons have have altered since the middle of the, the 20th century, for example. It's certainly become a lot more prevalent for people to go across disciplinary boundaries and range across periods, but that still doesn't mean that very many people are doing it. On the whole, it's quite natural for us to remain within our disciplinary boundaries. And it takes an awful lot of extra work, as I've discovered, to try and go wider and deeper. And also there are, there are questions, aren't there, about the validity of, you know, for example, looking at sub-Saharan Africa. What, what, what comparisons are, are valid? What can be drawn from looking at um, such radically different cultural situations? I think that there are two answers to that. The first is I take my measure from anthropologists themselves, and increasingly they're calling on historians to collaborate so they get some sense of what's odd about Africa, if anything. Just as I'm interested in what's odd about Europe, so there's a natural marriage of interest there. The other factor is that increasingly uh, witch hunting in the developing world is contaminated by European ideas. In Africa, for example, the present explosion of hatred of witches is a perfect blend of uh, pre-European native fears of magic with Christian evangelism coming in with new sects from the New World. So all sorts of exports and re-exports and, right. and ricochet effects um, take, yeah. t- taking effect. You're no longer talking about completely intact tribal societies of the sort that anthropologists were contacting in the mid-20th century. It's a whole different world. So when, when you set off, in that case, on, on this quest for witches across time and space... Do you find them in every culture? Do you find them in all cultures? Tell me a, a bit about what you, what you begin to detect. You find the fear of witchcraft, by which in this context I mean the fear of destructive magic worked against you by an enemy, in every inhabited continent of the world, and it's believed in by most recorded European societies. But there's a minority, and again they're well scattered, who don't attribute horrid bad luck and misfortune to bad magic. Instead they blame either land spirits of the sort we'd call fairies or angry ancestral spirits of the sort we'd call ghosts. The biggest witch-free area in the world is Siberia, which is a third of the northern hemisphere. So that's pretty substantial. And of course, Siberia, the home of the shaman, which I guess is not accidental in that regard. Not entirely, although shamans, that's Experts in communicating with the spirit world on behalf of their communities who do so with a dramatic performance in which they go into trance are compatible with witch hunting. You don't find much witch hunting in Siberia, but you do find a lot of it in native North America, including Arctic areas which have shamans of the Siberian kind. So it's pick and mix. And you you mentioned misfortune there. Is it too crudely reductive to say that ascribing misfortune to which is, 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 a, is a sort of primitive form of, um, of identifying causation. It's looking at the world and trying to ascribe some cause to bad things which happen. Primitive is one way of putting it, but leaving aside the fact that not everybody blames uncanny misfortune on witches, human beings have a real problem with coping with the idea of uncanny bad luck. They're really unwilling to put it down to uh, random incidents alone. They, they really want something or somebody to blame. And whether or not they blame other humans, they want to blame something. 
And what about the association with witchcraft with women? What do you find when you begin to, to look globally at, at that? One of the most valuable things about uh, taking a global perspective on witchcraft is to show that gender in the victims of uh, the witch hunts or the presumed victims of witchcraft is a total variable. In some societies, the obvious people as witches are male and some they're female. In some they're the old and some they're the young and some they're the rich and some they're the poor. It just matters a lot to us that most Europeans since ancient times have instinctively regarded witches as stereotypically women. Now, ancient Egypt, from, from reading your book, I know that ancient Egypt didn't really have a concept of the witch. And yet, as your story goes on, it becomes clear that ancient Egypt is a very significant culture to look at because certain attributes were transmitted and changed but have have their origins there and would come down to the to the medieval and early modern european world so can you say something about what what is going on in ancient egypt and and then how it maybe begins to to be transmitted I love Egypt because it's so outstandingly remarkable in the ancient world. It's the only civilization there, the only culture of which we have record, which doesn't have any sense of the boundary between magic and religion and believes that it's wholly okay for human beings to use magic. Even if they use magic to curse each other, then the presumed victims can take countermeasures magically and ask for an expert to help them. And this means that the Egyptians are the practitioners of learned, that's written, complex magic, par excellence in the ancient world. And when the Romans take them over, their magic simply moves out of the temples and gets privatised. And Egyptians magicians teach a particular kind of magic to the Greeks and the, then the Arabs later on and this forms the basis of learned ceremonial magic throughout the old world, certainly the basis of that used by medieval Europe. So for people who are not familiar with the term learned ceremonial magic, what are the sort of salient characteristics of it? By which I mean magic that depends on books, or at least written rituals, that are pretty heavy on prescribed words, set text, incantations, and equipment uh, like wands, pentacles, swords, and geometric figures like circles and triangles. This is heavy-duty magic. It's the classic kind of magic in which to get a nice girlfriend, you have to write with the blood of a black ibis bird on the skull of a baboon at noon on Friday with an incantation to the goddess Hathor. And it's the kind of magic to which no negative cultural stigma attaches. Is that true? In the, in the ancient Egyptian world? In the ancient Egyptian world, it's the most favoured kind of magic and a society which favours magic in general. Even later on, in a Christian Europe in which magic of any kind is regarded as inherently risky and probably demonic, the learned magician attracts far less hostility and fear and indeed punishment than the village witch. One thing we didn't talk about <coughs> earlier, Ronald, is the question of whether there was a real practice, a real phenomenon of people casting spells and believing they were engaged in malignant magic and to what extent it was a cultural construct which really had, had no reality. Now, how, how difficult is it to investigate that? 
it's pretty well impossible to solve that problem. Logically, in a deeply religious society that absolutely believes in devils, it seems reasonable that somebody somewhere would both have tried to harm the neighbours they really hated by magic, and maybe even have tried to make a pact with the devil to do it. The problem is the state of the records is such, the trial records are so much from the viewpoint of the interrogators and accusers, that it's very hard to substantiate this in any single case. At the present day, uh, we choose not to believe in Satan and not to believe in a satanic conspiracy, and thereby rule out the whole propelling belief of the trials themselves. So we're left with the secularized version, and the records are just not sufficient for us to do anything with it. And what about the, what about the next stage? Um, therefore, the the organisation, the 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 Sabbath, and so on. I mean, if we if we can't prove the individual acts with black magical intent, it must be it must be equally difficult to um, to say anything about whether the witch's Sabbath was again a purely imaginary phenomenon. We really can't come across any solid evidence that anybody ever gathered in groups to worship Satan let alone as part of a broader network. The accounts of the Sabbath are pretty well always linked to torture or mental illness or hysteria. What's much more likely and is immensely hard to determine is whether people in private as individuals try to make a pact with Satan and hex their neighbours. We do actually have solid evidence that some young men at least did try and make pacts with the devil and give him their souls in exchange not for powers to hurt their neighbours but powers to get on in life because these written pacts, silly boys, were discovered and they were put on trial, especially in the early 18th century. You challenge in the book the idea that there was a, there was a millennium of, of no witch hunting and no witch trials until the early 15th century. Nonetheless, it is the case that it, it was by no means prevalent. It was, it was exceptional. I agree that uh, witch hunting is at a pretty low level through most of the Christian Middle Ages. I don't think anybody would say there was no witch hunting in the earlier Middle Ages, but it's sporadic, incidental, low level, doesn't measure up big body counts. In fact, I don't think there's uh, a single witch hunt in which uh, a couple of hundred people get killed from the fall of the Roman Empire through to the late Middle Ages. But in the late Middle Ages, when uh, the first uh, early modern style witch hunts break out, which is in a valley in Switzerland in 1428, immediately hundreds of people are dying, so you're in a different world. So can you sketch out what elements were present by the 1420s in, in that part of Europe? Can you sort of pick out some of the things which you think had to be present in order for that yeah, first right. witch trial to take place? The early modern witch trials, which, which start in the 1420s in Switzerland, are dependent on a belief that there is a conspiracy of human beings who worship Satan. They are out-and-out devil worshippers, and in return for giving their full religious allegiance to Satan, he equips them with helpful demons who can then enable them to do whatever they like to kill or torment their neighbours, and that they get together regularly to worship Satan and trade horrid secrets with each other and do unspeakable things sexually and, in terms of diet, alongside demons. 
So that is the fatal construct. The word that I picked out and what you just said was conspiracy, because is that the phenomenon that's new? Christianity identifies not just an individual, but some kind of almost anti-religion, some kind of force that is organised against Christian orthodoxy. Yeah, in many ways, the idea of the satanic witch, which underlies the early modern witch trials, is the ultimate conspiracy theory, because it's literally uh, a cosmos-wide issue intended to exterminate the human race. You don't get better than that. And the idea is known at the time as new. You get people who propagate it, saying, uh, just don't bother about what's happened hitherto. This is Satan's latest scheme, and it's potentially devastating. So new and identified as new, but drawing on elements, some of which clearly come from Rome, and some of which come from the, the, the southern German myth of the, the cannibalistic witch. So things which have been in the culture, but are being brought together and, as it were, represented or recon, reconfigured to produce what these um, Christian friars were presenting as, as something new and, and uniquely threatening. Totally agree. Once you've got this idea of a satanic conspiracy up and running, then again, you pick and mix uh, ancient beliefs, some are in the literature, which are read by learned people, and some in the beliefs of ordinary people at village level. They think these things are hanging around for millennia. But uh, they've only really mattered hitherto very little, because on the whole, people accuse each other of witchcraft individually, at a low level, without much support from the community or the state to do so. But come the 1420s onwards, the community and the state are believing in something urgent, new and desperately serious, by which Satan is trying to rub them out. And especially what the satanic witches do is kill children. So if children are dying in large numbers, and this is a society in which in normal conditions, half of all children die before the age of five, the aggrieved parents now have somebody to blame en masse. And there's nothing like having a child killed to turn both parents and the community against suspect with an especial venom. But as you say, children have died throughout history, crops have failed throughout history. The elements which were used to come up with this new figure of the witch pre-existed it. So what was it that was different? Was it something which was happening in Christian ideology or something which was happening in, in social structures? Or how, how easy is it to try to identify those, those elements which were present, which, which facilitated this? Late medieval Christians, or at least Christians doing a lot of thinking, are more worried than earlier medieval Christians. Christianity is contracting because Islam is spreading into Europe and conquering increasing parts of it. The weather's getting worse with the onset of the Little Ice Age. Bubonic plague has arrived devastatingly from the East after being absent for centuries. So it really does appear as though God is unhappy with Europe and is getting at it. So in this internalizing, questing, anxiety-ridden state. When the friars come up with this idea of satanic conspiracy using witchcraft and go around preaching it, everybody's uncanny bad luck can suddenly be brought together in one construct. Not just your children dying mysteriously, but your geese not lying, your houses catching fire, your livestock getting an epidemic, storms flattening your crops. They're all seen as a manifestation of the same attempt to take you out. 
And these friars, they literally went around. They went from place to place uh-huh. preaching. And there was, there was enough, if I can put it this way, combustible material among the populace for the spark to, to catch light. Is that, is that how it, it would travel from one geographical location to another? That is how it travels. And friars, preaching friars, talk to each other and spread the news about things they've heard from the locals and possible weird sects in valleys who could be caught up in this uh, satanic attempt against humanity. And we do have some of the sermons the friars concern surviving, like, Saint Bernardino of Siena, who would go from town to town preaching the new stereotype of the satanic witch, and on uh, getting one woman burned as a witch, could say, let's send up some of the same incense to heaven, in other words, the smell of roasting flesh. And we're talking, we're talking at the moment about the 1420s, late 1420s, but it, it doesn't build like a crescendo and, go, and take over everywhere, does it? It's much more patchy. I think you use the word patchwork several times in the book. So what is causing it to sort of light up some areas, literally, and um, not received in the same way in others? Well, the idea of the conspiracy of satanic witches is a slow-burning fuse, because for all sorts of reasons, a lot of thoughtful Christians find something inherently daft about, I mean, why would God do this? Why would he allow it? And as a result, it claims no more than a few thousand victims in its first hundred years, and it's really found only in the Alps and down the Rhine to the Netherlands and uh, southwards into Italy and bits of Spain, and that's it. It really takes off in one long lifetime, 1560 to 1640, and that's when the vast majority of the victims are claimed and the mass trials happen. And it happens then because Christianity has been torn apart in the wars of religion between Protestant and Catholic, and it's always leading exponents of the two rival faiths who are out to wipe out each other, and also wipe out satanic witches as part of the package. There's a feeling that Satan really is putting out all his efforts to wreck everything, otherwise how can you explain the Reformation crisis? In a sense, typologically, is it a subspecies of heretic hunting, or is that, or is that too reductive? It's not too reductive. Uh, the drive against witchcraft is an offspring from the main medieval thrust against heretics. The difference being that earlier in the Middle Ages, heretics were recognisable. They stood up to be counted as heretics, and they were contested by fighting them in battle, by picking them out and putting them on trial and hearing their views and uh, then executing them. Whereas the whole idea is the satanic witch conspiracy is secret and therefore witches are supposed to be hidden in society and they're not supposed to admit to it unless you torture them. And that opens up completely new fields of horror in that people who really are innocent can be swept up really easily and destroyed. I was fascinated by what you wrote about the likelihood of being convicted of being a witch in areas where, um, in, in Iberia, where the Inquisition was strong, or in Italy, where the papacy was strong. And in fact, a strong authority and an organisation actually made it much less likely than an area where authority was weak, territories were carved up, and perhaps the authorities were much more vulnerable to anxieties in the population. That communicated itself, and that was something which I hadn't um, any inkling of. The drive to persecute witches comes from below, 
from ordinary people who are convinced that their lives are being trashed by malevolent neighbours employing witchcraft. And that generates an awful lot of hate and fear. Where authorities are powerful, they can take stock of the situation. They can hear the evidence carefully and then come to a decision. And there's something about a witch trial which worries most reasonable lawyers and theologians. Uh, It's an almost impossible crime to prove. And if you extract a confession by force, how do you know it's genuine? And these problems never go away. And so in areas with really thorough, efficient, conscientious inquisitions, like the parts ruled by the Pope himself, and like most of Spain, the rules of evidence are so strict, it becomes pretty well impossible to convict anybody of witchcraft. But where rulers are frightened of their populace, and having their hand forced by them, and where they're right on the frontier of Protestant and Catholic, with their own religion in danger of being swept away at any moment, that's an authorities' panic. So strong authority discourages witch trials, but otherwise the religious denomination of a a polity is no indicator of the likelihood of of witch trials. You find them in in Lutheran and Calvinist and in Catholic areas. Absolutely not. The three worst areas for witch hunting in early modern Europe, at least from a liberal humanist point of view, are Catholic Southern and Mid-Germany, Calvinist Scotland, and Lutheran Northern Norway. So apart from being small polities, does anything else spring out as, as being factors they have in common which might fuel this hunt for witches? It really helps to have a decentralised system of justice so that uh, if somebody is accused of witchcraft, they're basically being tried by the people who are accusing them or by people who are friends with those who are accusing them. Once you get into that situation, it's pretty well impossible for somebody to escape conviction. Where you have centralised justice, where you have the case being heard by people who are highly trained professionals and or are a jury impanelled from areas that are completely away from the scene of uh, the original accusation, then acquittal rates soar. You talk about a number of um, witch hunters' manuals. What, who, for whom were they produced? What, 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 what was the role of, I mean, obviously the role of the witch hunter was to find witches, but what, what kind of person would be, would be co-opted into that? The typical sort of person who reads a witch hunter's manual is somebody who's come to believe in the satanic conspiracy, but doesn't know a great deal more about it, and certainly doesn't know the mechanics of putting on a witch trial, how much evidence you need, how much you should apply pressure on the accused, that sort of thing. And that's why experienced judges on the whole tend to write these manuals, and magistrates tend to read them. So, I mean, so you talked about the pressure coming from below, but there's a sort of, is this a sort of form of elite regulation, or how, how does the, the witch hunter and the witch hunting manual sort of interact with those popular pressures? Well, this is an international literature. So our most notorious ever uh, English witch hunter, Matthew Hopkins, who stepped into a vacuum and justice created by the Civil War, had had his consciousness raised not just by reading homegrown English manuals on witch hunting, but by reading some of the most famous from continental Europe as well. They simply cross boundaries. The most famous one, I think, to, to most people is probably Maleus Maleficarum, which you say is, is actually an atypical publication. Why, why is that? 
It's atypical, A, because it's written by a churchman and most witch hunting manuals are written by magistrates. B, because it is so misogynist. Uh, it's, it's not so much afraid of women as afraid of sex, but naturally it associates that with women. So uh, it has all sorts of diatribes against the evil things that evil women do in particular. And, and it's long and intemperate. So for anybody who wants to have something that's lurid, that uh, embodies everything that a modern liberal will feel about misogynist medieval churchmen. This is the obvious book to pick, but most witch hunting manuals aren't like that. Now, at the popular level, you're interested in seeing what manifestations of the local and the popular and the folkloric find their way into the witch hunt and the witch trial and what kind of dynamic there is between those two things. And again, it's, it, it, as ever, it's, it, it's complex and it's not sort of unidirectional, is it? Yeah, uh, the folkloric elements, meaning uh, ideas ordinary people have about the spirit world that aren't usually shared by the elite, are important in certain areas, particularly around the periphery in the British Isles, fortunately, in Scandinavia, uh, in parts of northern Spain, uh, in the Alps and northern Italy and the Balkans, and not so much so in the centre, in the area of most intense witch, intense witch hunting. So the mixture of popular fear, popular belief and elite belief is a bit different in each place. You describe the, the structure of the book as contracting concentric circles. So you start out with this global perspective and then, then look at Europe and then you concentrate in the final chapters on some examples from the British Isles. And I was interested in, in that context, in, the, in the, the last chapter there, about the familiar the familiar, the, the animal uh, who may be a, a manifestation of, of the witch or a demon or an animal which does the bidding of, of the witch. And you say that they are much more common in English trial records than they are in European ones. And you use this as a way of, of sort of trying to, to track the reason for that disparity. Yeah, we, we don't know why this is. There's a general belief across Europe that witches are assisted by demons. And there's also a genuine belief across Europe that demons take animal shapes. But in Scotland, for example, uh, this takes the form of the devil appearing to you as an animal, usually a black dog, and uh, making his pact with you. And then you go off and hex people. Whereas the peculiar English thing, and we still can't quite explain it, could just be the English love pets, is the familiar becomes a pet. It becomes a cuddlier, smaller sort of animal that takes up residence in your house and which you feed and then it goes out to kill people. I mean, you, you, when you say it, it could be that the English had, had pets or were adopting pets, and perhaps more quickly than Europe, you, that, that's, that's one serious possible explanation for it. It's one serious possible explanation, but I haven't yet seen any solid evidence for it, unfortunately. What we can say is the English take common stereotypes found across Europe and put them into a particularly cute and cuddly form, but still lethal. Why, why do you think witchcraft has been such a subject of fascination for, for scholars in the last few decades. What, what is it about it that makes it so appealing as an area of study? Well, the root of the fascination that scholars have with witchcraft is that they're constantly aware that uh, between forty and 50,000 people were put to death in early modern Europe on the charge of witchcraft completely needlessly. So we have this enormous atrocity 
to explain in our recent past, relatively speaking, which seems a completely daft and terrible thing to do. So explanation is needed. In more recent decades, when the feeling of horror and alienation has worn off a bit, studying past witchcraft beliefs is a classic anthropology of history. It's uh, where you display your virtuosity as a historian, in being able to enable modern people to understand past people with completely different mindsets. And yet, witchcraft is not something which has which has vanished from the world, or accusations of witchcraft not something which has vanished from the world. Tragically, no, they're increasing in number in vast areas of the world, from Latin America through sub-Saharan Africa, across South Asia to the Pacific Islands. It's a major national problem on a scale with something like malaria or AIDS. And so something needs to be done about it. And the fear of bad magic lurks below the skin of Western society also. At times it comes up above the surface. The deliverance ministry in North America is based on the idea that demons are real and ministers are there to cast them out. And some of those who cast them out and their converts are persuaded the demons are sent by humans, witches. The only reason why they haven't gone after the witches so far is they are confident enough of their powers to cast out the demons, to remove the problem and therefore not have to go after its source. I was talking to Ronald Hutton about his new book, The Witch, A History of Fear from Ancient Times to the Present, which is published by Yale University Press. You can find out more about it on Yale's website. Do also visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can catch up on any interviews you've missed. There are all sorts of good things coming up in the weeks ahead. Next week's programme asks the question, why did pet keeping become popular in 18th century Britain and go from being severely criticised as wasteful, even sinful, to entirely acceptable, even praiseworthy, in the space of just a hundred years. My guest in that programme is historian Ingrid Taig. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.